Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Loudcast. This week's guest is a man who is a real rebel in terms of his background compared to his upbringing. Reporting on the troubles and political investigations for over 45 years, I'm pleased to welcome a friend and my journalist mentor, Dr. John Coulter. Dr. John, how are you? I'm keeping really well because my beloved Gunners are <laughs> top of the league for the time being. Straight in there, straight in there. Oh yes, I get. <laughs> I, I, I love to get straight into people because there was, was it last season, uh, we were bottom going into the first international break, bottom of the league, no points, no goals, nothing, and Spurs, my goodness, I could vomit when I say that word, when Spurs <laughs> were top of the league, Boy, my mates who were Spurs supporters were fairly rubbing it into me. Yeah. So it's nice. It's nice to be top of the world, top of the league, in the top league of the of the uh, world. And uh, essentially, we're above Tottenham Hotspur. Well, and that's all that matters. Well, you know, John, prizes are not given out. Trophies aren't given out for being top in, in March. You have to see what happens in May. This is very true, Doggo, because whenever, at the start of every season, <laughs> I sort of say to myself, well, how will my beloved Gunners do this season? And what I wanted this season, this particular season, was A, to get back into the Champions League spots, but B, most importantly, for the first time in a few years, finish above Tottenham Hotspur. Well, I think that's hopefully in the bag for you. Well, hopefully, yes, that's going to be in the bag because it was a real sickener last season, with three or four games to go, we threw it away. And who did we throw it away to? Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> I need to take another drink because I'm going to be sick. I was, at we, the we, this should be a match of the day as opposed to being a, a serious political podcast. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. I think if I was a commentator on match of the day, I would be getting stuck into Tottenham. And uh, I, I like to watch Tottenham, especially whenever they get beaten. It, it's really good. I watched a couple of matches recently. Uh, in the FA Cup whenever they were beaten by Sheffield United uh, and also the league game, uh, not just whenever we beat them but also as well uh, Wolves because uh, my son, the eldest son who lives in England some of his chums are Wolves supporters so they would get together for a match day and apparently it was some crack whenever, uh, I wish I'd been there just to cheer and I remember one time, it was a few years ago I remember uh, at the church I went to uh, there were a lot of Spurs supporters, yeah. and one of the lads owned a gym. So Spurs, I think, were in the Champions League final against Liverpool, and they had a big night in the gym. And of course, all the people coming were Spurs supporters, and they had flags and shirts and you name it. It was a great night's crack. I turned up in the Liverpool top, <laughs> and uh, it was from the point of view... Uh, I'm lucky to have got out alive because whenever uh, Liverpool scored, and especially after the final wh uh, whistle when they won, I was the one cheering, and I thought one of these barbells is going to be dropped in me uh, from a great height. There's been a few hairy moments of your career, no doubt, over the years. Oh, yes, I mean, you, you summed me up uh, very well uh, as a rebel because uh, I was always, I, I suppose, to misquote a film, I'm a rebel with a cause, as opposed to a rebel without a cause. James Dean. Yes, Yep. Yeah, I think I would be the James Dean of the Christian Church. <laughs> what a thought. I suppose, um, listening, if people have just tuned in, there's no doubt of what football team they support. <laughs> I would like to assume that they know that I support the mighty Gunners. Not just Arsenal, the mighty Gunners.
And I, I wish we were here just to talk about football because I could listen to you giving off about uh, Tottenham for a long, long time. Oh, oh yes. I mean, uh, I have. I, I mean, I, on social media, I, I've even given them. I've even given them uh, a rather unfortunate uh, nickname, Rottenham Hot Scum. I know it's very contentious. I know it's probably bordering on, on incitement there. But uh, from that point of view, I know how to wind people up. <laughs> and I've actually had to unfriend people on social media for the simple reason they've taken my banter really, really seriously. So I think in the past number of months, there's been a couple of people who have got haven't been able to take my very dark humour, if you could call it that, uh, about Spurs. Uh, and I've actually had to unfriend them in case that you know they maybe reported me to the police or something. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> Not again, well, yeah. The reason um, we've got you in today um, is about the fantastic reporting you've done on the Troubles and political investigations, as said in the intro, over a career over 45 years. And I'd like to maybe delve a bit more into that and really, how did it all start for you getting into journalism, John? Well, I stumbled into journalism by accident. Uh, sometimes when I'm talking to so many of my colleagues, they'll tell me, oh, they've wanted to be journalists since they were in primary school, since they were able to hold a pencil or a pen, they've wanted to be a journalist. I never had any thoughts about being a journalist. The big change for me in my life was at the age of 12 in 1972 when I became a born-again Christian. Uh, my late father was a Presbyterian minister. Church life is really important to me. A personal faith is really important to me. So that I'm a Presbyterian minister's son married to a Baptist pastor's daughter, who's also a journalist as well. So that uh, from that point of view, it's a strange path that I went along. So from the age of 12, I would have said I wanted to follow in dad's footsteps and become uh, either a Presbyterian minister or a Presbyterian missionary. So I was always telling God, God, I'm going to Union College, which is where Presbyterian ministers are trained, or to Queen's University to do a theological qualification. Yeah. I had no thoughts of journalism. But, and this is the big but, I'm a rebel with a cause. And as a Presbyterian minister's son, I don't fit the mould. For a start, my musical tastes are heavy metal. The big problem that I suppose I faced is that when Dad came to Clough Presbyterian Church, you need a good spittle in your mouth before Clough, up in North Antrim Hills, yeah. as opposed to Clough Presbyterian Church in County Down. There's two churches, but this was Clough Presbyterian Church up in the North Antrim Hills in the 1960s. The minister that had been there before uh, my father, the late Reverend Robert Lennox, he and his wife had not been blessed with children. Uh, so that myself and my younger sister, uh, he'd spent uh, 40 years in Clough, no children. So that basically when my sister and I arrived, there were very few people in that congregation who could remember kids in the months. Uh, so they all had a very convoluted way of how the minister's son, namely me, should behave, uh, dress and all that sort of thing. And they really did have, there were people in the church who really did have this perception that I should wear my Sunday best suit 24-7 with a huge big copy of a Bible under one arm and under the other arm my musical taste should be the Scottish metrical psalms. <laughs> I did not fit that. I was heavy metal to the, to the core. Bands like ACDC, Led Zeppelin. Black Sabbath, especially. <laughs> so you can imagine. I remember one lady coming to the church this, or coming to the the Presbyterian manse, 
Now picture the scene. There's this lady, and every time she's been at the manse, it's been very quiet. But suddenly, the door is opened by this teenage rebel, uh, long hair, status quo t-shirt, dirty jeans, and Black Sabbath's paranoid roaring through the manse on 200-watt speakers. I was a culture shock to that area of the Bible Belt. But I also then became a target because of my rebellious nature. And there would have been people who would have tried to make an example out of me simply because I was the minister's son. Let me give you a few sort of... Would that be to try and embarrass your dad as opposed to... Embarrass my dad, more so to embarrass me. Um, Basically, say for example, I remember one of the elders, he's dead now so I can call him by the nickname I gave him, Bald Eagle... Uh, Bald Eagle was a Presbyterian elder, uh, very liberal from that point of view, not an evangelical. Uh, he had a background in the security forces and the loyal orders, so that in the church he was well thought of, but he was a bad-tempered so-and-so. And spiritually, I learned absolutely nothing in his class. So uh, basically the lads, uh, usually led by me, we'd have a bit of fun. A bit of crack, not the drug I might add. Bit of fun uh, in the class, just to break up the boredom of Bald Eagle's class. Well, after a while, Bald Eagle got really fed up with uh, Wee Coulter and his mates having a bit of crack. So, basically, to make an example, I was sitting uh, in a semicircle. We were in a semicircle, and I was on the extreme left uh, of the semicircle. So, what did he do to make sure that we were all in order? punched me in the face in front of my mates. Now, do that in 2023. If an elder was to do that in 2023, you're talking major legal action. But in the 1970s, uh, corporal punishment was still legal in schools. So that getting a wallop from a Sunday school teacher or a teacher at school was was common knowledge uh, and common practice. So that it reduced me to tears. So that after that, uh, basically, I unless Bald Eagle asked me something from the catechism or a memory verse of a hymn, I never spoke to him again uh, from that point of view. Uh, and I remember years later, I caused a real diplomatic row in the church because being a Presbyterian minister, you're not in it for the money, you're in it for the gospel. So dad wouldn't have been really well paid uh, from that point of view. Okay, free. I know the jokes about the free house uh, yeah. and getting free Victoria sandwiches and stuff like that. Yeah, free tray but bakes. <laughs> free tray bakes from that point of view. But, you know, it's not a, a job for the money. Uh, so we didn't have in the 1970s a colour television when it became standard practice as it is now. So that I, uh, Bald Eagle's sister, uh, was a lovely woman and she would invite me round to watch the FA Cup final in colour. But you see, after Bald Eagle hit me, uh, when the next FA Cup came round, I point-blank refused to go to Bald Eagle's farm. And it caused a major diplomatic row. And it was only when another elder's wife stepped in and said, look, you can come to our house. That was how it was diffused from that point of view. Isn't that something, though? I mean, that's over 50 years ago. And that's still not traumatic. Maybe you're feeling the, the trauma of it now, but... It was such a traumatic thing then that you remember it so vividly now. Oh, yeah, but I still suffer from uh, those things, and I'll tell you why. Uh, There was one thug in the congregation, and I was targeted by him simply because I was the minister's son, and he wanted to show to everyone that he was the big bull of the woods. And I was warned by a few chums that uh, in the boys' brigade and in the youth fellowship 
that this guy was out to get me simply because I was the minister's son. So as he could prove to everyone, well, if this is what I do to the minister's son, what will I not do to you? That was his mindset. So that's something that many of my chums took for granted, walking from the seat of their car to their pew. I had to plan very carefully in the 70s. I had to make sure that I got to my pew in that Presbyterian church without getting the living daylights kicked out of me. So what I used to do was, uh, whenever uh, Dad drove up and parked his car, I would get out, go with him into the minister's room. That would be his private area, because uh, I knew this thug uh, wouldn't follow me. So after a couple of months, nothing had happened. Now, I'm talking about 1976. I was a 17-year-old then. And uh, one Sunday, uh, late 1976, nothing had happened, as I say. So I decided, I'll go straight into the church hall and wait for the opening devotions to begin. And I'm sitting there in one of the old-fashioned Presbyterian uh, chairs, which has an open back. Now, during my lifetime, I've had the pain of a broken toe playing football. I've had an abscessed tooth. I've had tonsillitis. The guy came up behind me, didn't see me, and he sunk the toe into my lower back on the left-hand side. I have never felt pain like it. And I turned around to see him smirking at me. And I remember just praying to God during the opening devotions, please God, do not let me faint in front because I was in absolute agony. And I knew there was no way I could go into the Bible class because if I did, I'd keel over and it would give this thug tremendous satisfaction. So I did the uh, John Wayne walk from Rio uh, Bravo, you know, the really cool walk as if nothing was wrong. And I made it eventually to my father's minister's room and it had lovely purple carpet in it and I just collapsed onto the floor and a few minutes later my father found me in tears collapsed on the floor. Now you might be saying God willing this year I'll be 64 Uh, so from that point of view you might be saying to me uh, well John that happened whenever you were 17 Uh, maybe you need to man up a wee bit but uh, years later I still, and what I'm rattling is my pillbox. So I have to take twice a day the medication because I have been left on lifelong medication uh, with severe back pain because of that thug. So I very quickly realised that I could be made an example of simply for being the preacher's kid. So as I moved gradually through my teens, I became more and more disillusioned with wanting to be a Presbyterian minister because I hoped to get married, and I didn't want my children to suffer the way I had suffered, uh, as an example. So eventually a situation arrived months before I had already applied to university uh, to do theology uh, and church law, so that basically I found myself in a situation after my mock A-levels when folk would ask me, well, John, what do you want to be? I would always reply with a negative. Well, I'll tell you what I don't want to be, and that's a Presbyterian minister. But then they would say, but what do you want to be? And I couldn't answer it. Now, one of the coping mechanisms that led me into journalism, one of the coping mechanisms I had uh, as a Presbyterian minister's son was I would give nicknames to people in the congregation. Now, I would never say this uh, to them, publicly to their face, because you'll probably get another digging. But these were people who would give me a hard time simply because I was a minister's son. Uh, and I would talk about them in the manse. 
so that there was Bald Eagle, there was Doodlebug Dandy, there was Mrs. Lucifer, uh, there was the pregnant gorilla, uh, there was Captain Blue. There was all these people in the church that never knew, uh, and the slurry gulper as well. That was another boy who <laughs> gave me a hard time. Uh, but there was one lady in particular, and I know that under 2023 standards, this is going to sound very misogynistic, but she was a real nag. And she nagged me about what I wore, who I chummed about with, obviously the music that I listened to. And I gave her the nickname Sarpus. Anytime we were at a church function, Sarpus would yap and moan and criticise me. And one night I was going into the church hall to a function and I opened the church hall door. Who came out? Sarpus. And I thought to myself, oh no, here we go again. Another slabbering match from Sarpus. But Sarpus's reaction was this. Ah, hello, John. How are you? And I'm thinking, what's she snorting? Uh, I can say that because she's dead now and you can't label the dead. So basically, uh, from from that point of view, I wondered, why is Sarpus being so nice to me when, you know, for years she clearly hates my guts, to put it bluntly? So there was someone in the congregation that I could always turn to. She was sort of the congregational uh, equivalent of MI5. She was able to tell me who was who and what was what. So I said to this person, can you find out why Mrs. So-and-so, obviously I didn't use the term Sarpus, is being so nice to me. And a few days later, this came back to me. And what I was told was somebody called a journalist wanted to do an interview with my dad about life as a rural Presbyterian minister. And Sarpus had got to hear about this interview. And she was worried that my father, not that he would, would sort of say, well, you know, there's folk in the congregation and they give my son a hard time for being the minister's son. I knew my father would never do that. Dad knew he would never do that. But it was very clear that Sarpus didn't. So basically for me, going into journalism, I stumbled into it by accident. For me, going into journalism was a port in the storm of life. And I remember it had an almost immediate effect I remember there was another person in the congregation gave me a hard time and he had the nickname the Poison Dwarf, very politically incorrect term by 2023 standards. And the Poison Dwarf came up to me and said, what do you want to be? Thinking I would reply Presbyterian minister to which he would probably have given a sarcastic remark. And calmly I said to him, I want to be a journalist and I want to write for the Sunday world. And he physically backed away from me. And I knew I'm on to a good thing here. And that's how I ended up doing journalism at Coleraine University rather than theology at Union College. <laughs> some story, that. Yes, that's indeed. Some, a roundabout way of getting there, but you got there. I eventually got there because, as I say, up until the age of 18, I had no thoughts whatsoever about journalism. So you went to Coleraine University? Yes. To be a journalist? A um, few years there and then out into the big bad world. Where did you start out then? Well, uh, while I was at uh, Coleraine, I did work experience with the late Maurice O'Neill uh, in the Ballymena Guardian, and I even had, for about three years, my own column. Uh, I come from a very strong boys' brigade background, and uh, Morris wanted someone to write the boys' brigade notes, so he gave me a full broadsheet page every week in the Ballymena Guardian, and the column was called Bugle Call, 
because many uh, uh, companies would have a bugle band uh, and certainly the company I was in had a bugle band uh, so we called it bugle call so I would write and take photographs uh, cover the sports cover uh, various events and churches from that point of view and it gave me a really good start and then after graduation because of the journalist training that I was doing taught us about filmmaking, taught us about radio work, that sort of thing. It was really one of the first multivocational courses in Northern Ireland. I was able to get freelance work with BBC Radio Ulster at that time. Oh, brilliant. So what was that doing then? That was just basically, I had an old year reel-to-reel uh, portable tape recorder, and if it moved, I interviewed it. And uh, basically, the secret was uh, getting an interviewee that could talk for four minutes because if you could produce a good package in four minutes uh, and it was broadcast, you got extra money. And you extra few quid. That's what it comes yeah. down to, doesn't it? Mike? Yeah, well, it's a good Balamina man. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm interested in the money. So was that just covering a lot of ba- local Balamina stories, good stories, bad stories, kind of anything? or was it Just a- anything that happened. Uh, and I mean, uh, I knew because I'd been to Balamina Academy, that, I mean, Balamina Academy's had some great people going into journalism. Uh, in the past, so hopefully I had a hard act to follow. There have been some really good journalists. But uh, there was some funny stuff as well. I remember that I did something on the MOT uh, for cars, and uh, I used my own car, which was a battered Renault 5, as an example, Uh, and I opened the door off it, and uh, it let this almighty creak out. And the MOT guy that uh, I was interviewing said, you know, if, if you don't get that fixed, it would fail an MOT. And we kept this in and it went out on BBC Radio Ulster. And I bumped into my, a few days later, my old uh, English literature teacher uh, from Ballymena Academy. And his reaction was, John, have you got your car fixed yet? <laughs> <laughs> some old times back then. Do you miss those times at all? Um, I I suppose given some of the stuff that I was to later become involved in, sometimes I wish maybe I had just stayed in the parish pump, uh, you know, doing the boys' brigade, uh, focusing on church work, uh, that type of thing. Is that the less controversial stuff? Very less controversial. Uh, Just just the ordinary run-of-the-mill stuff uh, that you're covering. But no doubt that gave you a good grounding. Oh, yes. That gave you, uh, for me, it gave me a confidence Uh, because being a Presbyterian minister's son, part of that time in my teenage years, there was almost this attitude, shut up, Coulter, and stay in the corner. Uh, You had to watch every single word you said, because somebody would be very critical of it uh, from that point of view. So I think that what journalism did for me was to boost my own self-confidence and self-belief that I could do these stories. I think uh, as a minister's son playing Highway to Hell... On a Sunday, but when you're meant to be at Sunday school, <laughs> probably went down quite well, didn't it? Went down like a lead balloon, especially whenever I took the decision to form my own heavy metal band. What were they we, called? The clergy. The clergy? The clergy. And what we did was, there used to be this photograph hung up in Dad's study of four uh, Presbyterian ministers in their clerical robes. And I thought, what about forming a heavy metal band called the clergy? And I'll borrow, and I use the term loosely, dad's clerical robes and we'll all be dressed if you could imagine father ted uh, playing heavy metal we'll all be dressed like clerics and we'll play heavy metal Uh, but i got into a lot of bother uh, over that because i set up one of the rooms in the manse as a recording studio uh, and we wrote this song uh, called hell's bells 
or no? No, sorry, the bells of hell, not to be confused with hell's bells. ACDC. Uh, sort of the bells of hell, go dang-a-ling-a-ling, go dang-a-ling-a-ling, you know, went like that there. Could be a so, Christmas song, I mean. uh, I'm not so sure that it would make the charts, but that was our song anyway. And uh, one of my chums took a photograph of one of our jamming sessions uh, in the manse, but it showed in, it was an old-fashioned, what they call slide. Uh, younger people would not remember what it was, but this was a thing you could flash up on a screen. Uh, and this slide made it out into the community. So this was proof that the devil's music was being played in the Presbyterian months. And shortly after that, I think there was an ad hoc meeting of uh, elders to decide whether I would be a bad influence. Now, I've never been able to get the minutes of that meeting So because the people who have been named to me who were at it are now all sadly dead, so obviously I can't ask them yeah. uh, from that. And I don't believe in seances, so I'm not going to contact them wherever they are beyond the grave. So from that point of view, uh, basically uh, what then happened was one of them confronted me and uh, said that, you know, this was, you know, are you the spawn of Satan for playing this? And I didn't help matters because I've always had a dark sense of humour as a Presbyterian minister's son. And I turned whenever he, this elder said about um, the spawn of Satan, I said that would be a great name for a heavy metal band, uh, which didn't go down well uh, <laughs> from that point of view. So yeah, I did get into a lot of bother uh, because this slide always seemed to be a few steps ahead of me. It was taken in 1976. Mm -hmm. In January 2020, my mother passed away. Later that month, an envelope arrived at my home and inside was the slide i don't know who sent it to me i don't know who had it it was sent to me anonymously but i now have the slide that's a bit of a mystery though isn't it i've no idea but i knew that this slide was always one step ahead of me because yeah. people were able to come up and tell me i mean chums that i'd been at primary school with at grammar school with uh, at university even working in journalism from that northeast ulster bible oh we've seen the slide we know that you're a heavy metal you know playing the devil's music and does the heavy metal band ever get a make a comeback Never got a wee reunion every few well, years? Well, uh, I, I don't think so because what I sort of stepped up a, a gear uh, because I cut my teeth in the music business working ironically for a gospel recording business called Herald Recordings. Uh, so I worked there learning how to operate the decks, microphones, all that sort of thing. And what year would that have been? You're talking somewhere between 75 and 78. And would you have been... Qualified as a journalist at this stage yet? Or? Not yet. Not I, yet. I, I didn't fully qualify until 1981. 80, okay. But what I did in the meantime when I was at university, during my three years at university, I set up my own recording label and it focused on punk and heavy metal music. Uh, now, I had a major choice to make at graduation. I could either go full-time in the music business or I could go full-time in journalism, but not both. The name of my company, recording company, was Budge Recordings because I'm only five foot four and my schoolboy nickname was Budgie Coulter. So I named the, the recording company after because some people would shorten Budgie to Budge. So Budge Recordings was punk and metal. If it was to become financially viable, I was going to have to record country and western music. And I cannot stand country and Western music. And before you jump in and tell me that I'm a hypocrite, <laughs> yes, I have to confess, I recently played the Boron 
and the stuff is all over social media at say. the present minute. Yeah. Uh, away from the electric guitars and the head banging and the bopping. Social media doesn't lie. It doesn't <laughs> lie. Uh, I like to play the boron. I'm just fascinated with that instrument. Yeah. And for Christmas last year, uh, my wife got me a special boron made because I'm one of these oddballs. I don't sit and play the boron. I stand. <laughs> so uh, I really like to give it a good blatter. Do you ever play the boron when you're watching Arsenal? Uh, no. anything. Oh, are you trying to make the, the smart ass column uh, comment? Boring, boring Arsenal. Boron, boron. Boron Arsenal, yeah. No, uh, I uh, basically, from that point of view, uh, a friend of mine, he was uh, organising a gospel concert, and it was mainly country and western music, and he was short of a boron player. For some reason or another, he thought of me. So I went along, and uh, it was in a Presbyterian church hall, and I give the boron a good blattern. Um, sort of amazing grace has never been battered the way I battered it uh, as, as a great gospel hymn. And somehow all of this stuff got recorded on social media, so it's all out over social media. This heavy metal guy, the former lead guitarist... Gone viral, no doubt. Okay, so you qualified in 1981 as a journalist. Yep. Um, in Northern Ireland, that was obviously the peak of the... Well, right in the middle of the Troubles. Right in the middle so of the hunger strikes. I'm sure you have some hair-raising stories. And uh, did you, you started... Obviously, yeah. you were doing, covering the sort of local stories in Balamina, and then you progressed into sort of... I yeah. want to say, is mainstream the right word? Or national, national newspapers? Yeah, I mean, I had the privilege of working with some great names in the BBC... Uh, people like Bill Neely, who went on to become a globally renowned journalist, uh, Connor Bradford. Uh, uh, I think my time in the BBC coincided with some great producers, some great fellow journalists, and I learned so much from them. What year would that have been? This would have been 81, 81, 81 to about 83. But one of the things that happened was, uh, I suppose, my interest in paramilitaries, and I don't mean as a member, uh, I mean, as a reporter, came coming from a church background, I could never understand why people needed to resort to violence from that point of view. And I suppose as well, when my cousin, who was an off-duty, uh, well, he was an on-duty at the time, RUC officer, when he was murdered uh, in a booby-trap car bomb, um, and I always remember my father had to go and identify him. And the look on my father's face, I've never seen... Uh, the like of it before and from that point of view I could never understand why do people need to resort to violence to push their political agenda so I suppose I became fascinated why the need for paramilitaries and I suppose uh, I put out some feelers and what came back was I received a phone call in November 1981 and it was the weekend before the Reverend Robert Bradford was murdered by the IRA. So we're talking early November, 81. And I was told to go to a village, a uh, twin village in County Antrim called Kells and Connor. And whenever I went there, there was about 400 members of a paramilitary group called the Third Force. I got the exclusive pictures and the interview. And uh, basically that really launched to put it bluntly, my career looking into paramilitaries. And whilst many people, journalists, have used uh, Northern Ireland as a springboard, the way I looked at things, why go to Beirut to get your ass shot off when I can stay here in Belfast? <laughs> Plus the fact I'm a real home bird. Yeah. 
so that you know I enjoyed staying at home, uh, enjoying mummy's cooking. I'm quite openly a mummy's boy. Uh, I can boil an egg, uh, and I remember uh, when I was doing my journalist training at uh, Coleraine, my mum would pack me little stuff for going up there uh, from that point of view, because apart from the canteen, I couldn't cook to save my own life. So from, from that point of view, I stayed in Northern Ireland, and that story gave me the impetus to stay here, to investigate, to interview the paramilitaries about why they had to indulge in that sort of violence. And you would have come face to face with a lot of people, a lot of interviews, probably back alley type interviews would have been. Yeah, you're looking at a situation there. You can't where, invite them into the studio. Oh no, you can't bring them into the studio so that you would be meeting people at unusual hours in unusual places. And it might sound a bit um, cryptic, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, but my favourite place to meet sources was graveyards. Uh, from the point of view, nobody's going to be hanging around a graveyard at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And shortly, a short distance, I should say, from where I lived was an old disused church. Uh, and I used to meet a lot of my sources there. But eventually, in 1991, I stopped using that location for the simple reason it featured on a Channel 4 documentary that I helped to make uh, about allegations of collusion. And they showed the church, so I knew, well, that's it, out of the way. But I had cemeteries all over Northern Ireland where I would meet people. Yeah. Seems, sounds very interesting and sounds... Sounds a bit spooky as well. Well, it is a bit spooky. Uh, I think probably one of the spookiest stories was I was going to meet uh, a source in the church in Cloch Graveyard one night. And there was a chum that I'd been in the boys' brigade with and I'd lost touch with him. And as I'm scurrying round through the graves to get to there, I just happened to look round and I saw his headstone. I didn't even know the guy was, was ill, let alone dead. And that made me jump, you know, from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose as well, uh, that particular cemetery, I also, to get into the old church, I had to pass the grave of a chum who sadly was killed in a car accident in the 1980s. So that it just reminded me, just be careful, John. You are dealing with people who believe in death. Yeah. Uh, just watch what you do. I was going to say, you see, when you say you've, you're meeting these sources, would they have been people in the paramilitaries who wanted to get a story out there? Or they been people maybe... Yes, the th this, this is weren't, weren't, an ethical dilemma, yeah. both as a journalist and as a Christian, that I have struggled with all my career. I think my follow-on question, just to sort of double up on it, would be, if they're kind of trusting you, like how does it feel to be trusted by people who were maybe the doing key, The exact, key word you know? was trust. I mean, I'm often asked sometimes, how can you show your Christianity in journalism? And the Ninth Commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. And my interpretation of that is, you make sure, Coulter, that everything that you publish, everything that you broadcast, is 100% legally, ethically, and factually accurate. And I've stuck to that all the way through my journalistic career. I suppose the only accolade that I would boast, if I could use that word, I've never received a solicitor's letter. Oh yes, I've been in many a contentious situation. I've written in very controversial manners uh, from that point of view. My grammatical presentation has been in doubt uh, quite a bit. The types of stories that I've done ethically 
have certainly been in jeopardy. But I've always said, said <coughs> excuse me, stayed on the legal side and made sure that everything is 100%. And unless it is 100%, I don't use it. Maurice O'Neill, I always, he was my first uh, editor, as I say, the late Maurice O'Neill of the Ballymena Guardian. And I remember my interview for that work placement uh, in the old, uh, well, still there, I think, the Adair Arms Hotel in Ballymena. And Morris said to me, he summarised uh, McNair's essential law for journalists like this. If in doubt, check it out. If still in doubt, leave it out. And I've applied the laws and ethics according to what Morris taught me uh, way, way back in the 70s. Proper good grounding then? Yes, I had a great grounding. As I say, I'm very privileged to have had so many great editors in my life that I could learn from them. So in the... Were you working for the Sunday World then, in the 80s? I didn't. Uh, I be- worked for the Sunday World when I went into newspaper management in 1988. Okay. Uh, I was the deputy editor of the Larne Guardian, okay. sister paper of the Ballymena Guardian. And then later I became editor of the Carrick-Fergus Advertiser and East Antrim Gazette. Again, another sister paper of the Ballymena Guardian. So during that period, I was the East Antrim correspondent for the Sunday World. Okay. Now, I never used my name because the owner uh, of the group that I was in, the late Bertie Troy, uh, Bertie did not appreciate people writing for these downmarket tabloid papers. So from that point of view, the late Martin O'Hagan, uh, who was murdered by loyalists, Martin let me use his byline. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would basically write the story and then it would be published uh, from that point of view. <laughs> Uh, and occasionally, occasionally Martin would write a story about me. I remember on one occasion, I remember my background is Irish Presbyterianism, Ulster Unionism. My father later became an Ulster Unionist MLA, and he was very, very big in the loyal, the Protestant loyal orders. He was a deputy imperial grand chaplain in the Orange and a former assistant sovereign grand master in the Royal Black Institution. And I remember once covering a Republican parade, and there's bands at it. And one of the Republicans came over to me and he said, look, we're short of a judge. Would you mind judging the ban parade? <laughs> so there was me, the son of an Ulster Unionist uh, politician, Presbyterian minister's son, <laughs> judging a Republican ban competition. <laughs> so the, these Republicans were marching up and down in front of me and I'm standing there, you know, making the notes of it, you know, from that point of view. I'm sure that's only one of the many funny stories you would probably have over the... Well, probably, uh, uh, probably one of the daftest things that I ever got involved in was one night I went on patrol. I was taken on patrol by a Republican vigilante organisation. And uh, we had to meet in a particular village and it was just a patrol. Yeah. And I was taking the photographs. I turned up on time and everyone else turned up on time. But one of the vigilante volunteers was a bit late. And um, he basically said to us, I'm sorry I'm late, I had to get my tea. Okay, you think, no problem. Now, if you're a vigilante or a member of a paramilitary group, what is the one piece of clothing that you wear to cover your identity? <laughs> balaclava. The balaclava. <laughs> Guess what this vigilante forgot? The balaclava. Now, I was taking photographs. He? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so picture this scene. Uh, basically what the vigilantes wanted to do was to guard their local chapel or GAA hall or some Catholic property against attacks by loyalists. 
So basically the scene was we were uh, in the grounds of a Catholic chapel. I'm sure the Catholic hierarchy maybe didn't appreciate vigilantes uh, looking after it, but the, the, uh, there was a statue there. Uh, and it was white marble, so it would reflect well at night, because remember, this was about 11 o'clock at night. Now, uh, if any of you have been to university and have a university scarf, you know it's a bit like the Doctor Who scarf. It goes on forever and ever. So basically, this guy, combat gear, well over six foot uh, tall, uh, weapon, all that sort of thing. So basically, I couldn't take the photo. So what I did was I took off my university scarf Knowing that it was a black and white photo, it wouldn't show up the colours uh, of the university. So I said to him, wrap that around your face and then I'll take the photo. What did he do? I then turned round. He had wrapped it around his face and tied it in a bow at the top of his head. So if you imagine this six foot something paramilitary guy with, uh, he looked like an Easter bunny on speed. And I'm trying to keep my face straight, you know, from that point of view. Uh, you know, and there, there he is. He, he really looked daft. I have to say, the photographs got taken by the police, uh, so I never got publishing it, uh, you know, from that point of view. So uh, even though I've, I've said about that, there was another more sinister uh, event that happened that I was very fortunate to uh, survive. Um, it was round the uh, mid-1980s, after the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement in '85. And there's a lot of activity by uh, loyalist groups against it. You had groups set up such as the Ulster Clubs, Ulster Resistance, the Ulster Movement for Self-Determination. All these groups mobilised against the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And nationalists became quite worried that uh, their enclaves in loyalist areas might be attacked. Uh, so they had vigilante groups. And I had made slight mention of it, I think, in the newsletter. And it was one evening I received this call, telephone call, to meet down at a, uh, at a young farmer's hall. And I went down there, there was another car, I had my camera bag, we got into the car and we drove off. And I thought I was going to what I called a proddy job, because a few days earlier I'd been to a Protestant show of strength, paramilitary show of strength. This guy headed off towards a Republican area, and I thought, this is one smart go-between. He's going to take us into the Republican area because all the police and security force activity is going to be in loyalist areas. He drove into an area that was very strongly Republican, stopped the car and got out and walked away. My immediate reaction was thinking, I'm to be topped. My father was a politician. I worked for the newsletter. I was very strongly pro-unionist in any opinion pieces that I wrote. So I thought... I, I've pushed the boat out too far, they're, uh, far. they're going to make an example out of me. So I'm sitting there thinking my, my cross-country days at Ballymena Academy and Coleraine University and North Belfast Harriers, they're over, I'm very unfit. It's a good couple of miles to a maiden road. I'll just leave the gear, open the car and make a run for it and hope that I get there. I'm just about to make a run for it when the driver's door opens and in gets a top member of the provisional IRA. I nearly wet myself. I, I genuinely thought, I'm going to be topped. And he simply and calmly said to me, what do you want to know about our vigilante group? My hand was shaking so much, I couldn't take the interview uh, in shorthand. I had to rely on longhand. Uh, and for the next 20 minutes or so, he gave me a first-class interview. Yeah. Now, 
after it was over, um, you know, I was feeling a bit braver. He got out and walked away. Still no sign of my driver. So I got out of the car and all of a sudden the Provo appeared again. I said, what's wrong? And I couldn't find my driver. He said, ah, he's probably down at the pub having a pint. Sure, come on, we'll get you a cup of tea. And I thought, this is starting to get really crazy. So I was brought into a particular home, which I can only describe the living room as a shrine to the Irish Republican movement. And I always remember I had a cup of tea and two rich tea biscuits. <laughs> and we had a conversation about the prospect of Sinn Féin ever taking their seats in Doyle Aaron. And after several minutes, uh, basically the driver came and picked me up and away I went. And even colleagues that I had, I was then with the newsletter, wondered how the heck, Coulter, did you manage to get that interview, given who your background was? There's a lot of storm created over it, a lot of hoo-ha, uh, criticism of the article, that type of thing. But I didn't really understand the impact of what had happened. Several months later, I was covering an election uh, conference, and uh, I went to the, t- the bathroom. So I'm standing at the urinal, and the next thing I hear my name been called, and I turned round, and there was my contact that I had interviewed, along with a couple of minders, and he was deeply, deeply upset at the interview. It seems that he thought I was a Catholic from the Irish News, because apparently that's what had been booked, and what turned up was the son of a unionist councillor for the newsletter. Hmm. Uh, so somebody got their knuckles very, very severely wrapped, <laughs> and I had to stay out of a certain Republican area for many years afterwards. I'm sure you've had a few close, close shaves over your, over your, over your years. Yes, there have been a few uh, incidents. I remember with the BBC uh, that uh, I was asked to cover uh, a replay between Glentoran and Linfield Irish Cup final. Uh, there had been some violence at a previous match, <laughs> and. Okay, I'm from a Protestant background, but I was surrounded by skinheads who accused me of being a Finian B uh, from that point of view. So this caused great laughter uh, in the BBC newsroom that the son of a unionist councillor would be (laughs) accused of that. Uh, So that was one thing. Uh, I do have a slight scar uh, on my forehead where a member of the third force hit me in the face with an iron bar in the 80s uh, from that point of view. Uh, I've had a few threats in my time. Uh, I suppose the worst uh, would have come from the far right. I was going to. My next question was going to be following on with um, you met Nick Griffin and a lot of work with the. Well, I wouldn't say work with the National Front, but you've um, investigated them. Yes, I became fascinated with investigating uh, the far right for the simple reason that being a Christian, we're all equal in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a little chorus that I used to sing uh, in nursery Sunday school. It may not be appropriate by today's standards, but it went, red and yellow, black and white, all are equal in his sight. Jesus loves all the children of the world. And basically, I cannot understand and fathom why people need to hate somebody because of the colour of their skin. And just as I did... Uh, investigations into paramilitaries to try and answer the question why do people need to resort to violence as well as that I tried to investigate the far right why do you need to hate people because of the colour of of your skin Uh, and I'm talking from a Christian uh, point of view Um, so that the obvious organisation at that time that was growing in Northern Ireland 
was the National Front. Uh, and on one occasion, I had the opportunity to interview Nick Griffin. Uh, now, Nick Griffin is maybe better known as a former MEP for the British National Party, but at that time he was chair of the National Front. And I met him in a restaurant in Belfast. Uh, and we, uh, I made sure there was plenty of public people around, so if the interview got a bit hot and heavy, you know, I wouldn't be hurt. Uh, in any way, not that Nick Griffin would resort to physical violence towards me, but from the point of view, I just wanted to feel safe. And he reached me a book, which uh, he said basically were people that were opposed to the National Front. It had this rather sexy title, The State Reactionary Plot Against the National Front. And as I'm munching away on my burger, I was flicking through it, and I come to, I think, page 25 or page 26, and there's a half page on me. And I sort of wondered, does Nick Griffin realise that I'm the John Coulter that's mentioned in the book that he's given me? So it always had this weird thing. Did Griffin give it to me because he knew I was the John Coulter on page 25 or 26? Or did he simply not realise who, who he was talking to or yeah. who he was interviewing? Yeah. But uh, as I say, I've, I then progressed more into investigating the role of the Ku Klux Klan over here. Now, don't take the view that the Klan in Northern Ireland, and particularly a faction called the Knights of the Invisible Empire, which was a big faction of the Klan in the United States in the 1930s. They're not running around with sheets over their heads, burning crosses and well, flying Confederate flags. It's not something you'd associate with. You know, I mean, oh, there's obviously I've heard things like the National Front being here but and Combat 18 and things like that, but... I mean, the Ku Klux Klan in Northern Ireland, it doesn't sound... Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I'd come across them now. They're yeah. not big numbers, but they can certainly cause a lot of trouble. They can yeah. wind people up. And I managed to find someone, uh, a source, who was what he called a grand dragon in the KKK, Knights of the Invisible Empire. And, of course, controversial uh, Rule 14... Uh, I have a moral obligation, uh, that's the code of practice, to protect confidential sources of information. This chap was a source. And I was doing a two-part series for the London-based anti-fascist magazine Searchlight International. This was 2003. And I interviewed this guy to find out what they were up to. The first edition, uh, uh, or the first part of it, came out in November 2003. One night uh, shortly after that, at my home, uh, there was a knock at the door and I opened the door and here was this well-dressed chap in a three-piece suit standing on my doorstep and it was my source in the KKK and he was concerned that in the December edition that I would name him. Now obviously, and again it's an ethical issue, if you know your sources, should you name them? I believe not. Uh, I operate Rule 14 very strictly and it's been an ethical dilemma that I've faced all my life. So the guy said to me that his concerns, and I tried to assure him that I was not going to name him in the December 2003 edition. And I always remember that he said to me, and he couldn't care less that security lights and a security camera was on him. Here's the deal, Coulter. You don't blow my cover, and we don't blow up your house. I thought because he was standing on my front doorstep that that was a pretty good, pretty good deal. Yeah. But I've had run-ins with the far right. 
uh, a number of years later when I was doing an expose, or sorry, previous to that, I was doing an expose before I got married uh, at the newsletter. And I carried pictures of some of the leading lights in the National Front. And they retaliated by doing an article on me for National Front News, in which they had a photograph of me, they wrote about my father, where I lived, this sort of thing. And then they sneaked up uh, to my parents' house. I hadn't yet met my wife. Uh, my parents' house uh, near Balamina, And they put a copy through the front door. Uh, the police were very concerned. And there had to be a big review of my personal security uh, because of that. So that basically you've got to think of the backlash factor on yourself, on your family. You know, from that point of view. Yeah, I suppose the safety net of doing what you started out doing at the, in Ballymena. You know, the sort of day-in, day-out sort of town news, the safety of that, choosing to go into political investigations and, you know, certainly things like the Troubles and National Front and whatnot. I mean, that, that, that's the, the, the danger zone, um, if you like. Now, one question I thought of maybe was how your religious faith blended with that. You know, as your conflict as a reporter and reporting bad things, if you like, and like maybe having trusted sources who are you know, bad people, if you like. How did your, your religious faith sort of it, it, cross over? I'll not duck the question. It has been deeply challenged. And the big worry that I always had writing about paramilitaries, writing about racist and fascist organisations, would young people or anyone join those organisations because of the way I had written it or broadcast it? And that has always been a fear. Uh, I suppose as well... The other way that I can show my faith uh, as a Christian is through that trust. Uh, I think if I was to start naming contacts that I had made, that they would criticise me, not by saying, oh, you can't trust that journalist, Coulter. They would say, huh, you can't trust that Christian, Coulter. And that's how my faith would be ridiculed. Uh, I've only ever refused to do one story because of my faith. Um, Many years ago, when I was religious affairs correspondent at the newsletter, I was approached by someone who had been, uh, he was a Satanist, uh, and he was part of a cult. I think the name of the cult, in terms of their uh, abbreviation, was OTO. They were followers of the uh, Satanist Alistair Crowley. And he challenged me and he said, you call yourself religious affairs correspondent, but you only ever cover one religion and that's Christianity. You're either in a church or you're a chapel. Uh, and he had a point, and I did an interview uh, with him uh, for the newsletter many years ago, but he then turned to me and said, right, we want to invite you to one of our ceremonies known as a Sabbath. And I dug in my heels and refused to go. I just could not go to anything uh, where Satan is being praised. Yeah. And uh, I can understand as well, I mean, I've talked to uh, young uh, Catholic journalists who have found it difficult to write about, say, for example, clerical sex abuse allegations involving the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose probably a very difficult story that I did was I got some funding once to go to Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp in Poland to write an article to commemorate uh, International Holocaust Memorial Day every January the 27th, which was the day in which, um, in 1945, Auschwitz was liberated. And I remember going to do that uh, particular article, and it is one of the very few occasions 
as I walked through the gate, uh, there is these words in German and a big thing, uh, work shall set, set you free. I thought, I'm going to hoop up. And I had to turn and run back into the visitor centre to physically vomit uh, yeah. from that point of view. Another time when I've been physically sick was, um, I remember on one occasion going to a church where an anti-abortionist group was putting on a presentation. And before the presentation, they put on a really nice supper. And of course, me being a Balamina man, if there's free food going, I'm first in the queue. Mm. So I packed in this really lovely supper. We went into the main church, and what did they start off the presentation with? Showing a termination taking place. And I had to leave and throw up again. So those have really been the two occasions when my faith has been challenged physically. Um, and especially as well uh, in terms of uh, I refused to go to that Sabbath that I had been uh, invited to. Can I ask you a question? You mentioned earlier on Martin O'Hagan when you worked with him at the Sunday World. Um, and it's been well documented what happened to him. Um, and you've down south you had Veronica Guerin got murdered and more recently Lyra McKee. What was that like being a journalist who would have been investigating similar things to those type of people? I th- as a colleague, as much as being yeah. someone in the same profession? I didn't know Veronica Guerin personally. I knew Lara and uh, Martin personally. Yeah. And I remember uh, Martin coming round to my home and was chatting coffee. So he was not just a colleague, he was a chum yeah. uh, as well. So from that point of view, it really brought home to me the price that we can pay or could have to pay for press freedom. Uh, that there are people out there who will murder journalists. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's where you have to work out your backlash factor. Uh, and you also have to start thinking of your own personal health and well-being. And there have been nights that I have not slept, even though I've taken my sleeping tablet. Yeah. Uh, I haven't slept because I'm worried have I gone too far? And that was particularly so. I started to poke my nose as an investigative journalist into allegations of collusion between loyalist paramilitaries and the British security forces. I have to say that I have been advised by sources in loyalism, sources in the security forces, uh, don't touch it. It was a taboo subject. But unfortunately, I think... One of the things is journalism can become almost like a drug. I know some people are addicted to alcohol, gambling, drugs. Uh, I'm addicted to news. So from that point of view, I suppose I needed my latest buzz or fix. And when someone told me, don't poke your nose into these allegations of collusion, I couldn't resist it. And I began poking my nose in. And it blew up in my face in 1991 when I was part of a team that made the dispatches programme, the committee. Uh, And basically, uh, I was told by paramilitaries I was to be shot dead. The only reason I got to stay in Northern Ireland was my late father's back channels. And I remember my late father saying to me, your career in journalism is over because of this involvement in the programme. And basically, my father managed to broker a deal. Now, I can't produce 
like the, the Windsor framework, yeah. uh, you know, a document. This is an agreement between the Reverend Robert Coulter and so-and-so regarding his son. But the deal at that time in 1991 was if I wanted to stay in frontline journalism, I had to leave Northern Ireland. If I wanted to stay in Northern Ireland, I had to leave frontline journalism. And at that time, I know it's we live in a very multivocational uh organisation at the present minute in terms of journalism. But at that time in the early 1990s, public relations and journalism were seen as two separate careers. And I managed to secure a job as a PR director in the private nursing home sector. And I quite literally, for the next 16 months, hid out in the private nursing home sector until the heat of that dispatches programme cooled. Yeah. And is that something... I mean, at the time, you're looking after yourself. Obviously, it's a personal safety thing, but you have a wife and children to think of too. Yes. Uh, wife came... Uh, I remember as well, it's some of the guilt would be because my wife lost a child uh, before it was born, and I have the guilt. Did the pressure of me working on dispatches cause that? And it's something that I have to live with. Uh, she had a miscarriage yeah. so that um, it was a very dark time uh, in my life and I suppose my Christian faith was tested to the ultimate here I was I'd just done research for dispatches uh, it was a very controversial program I had achieved something in life that I had wanted uh, which was become editor of my own paper uh, which was the Carrick Fergus Advertiser in East Antrim Gazette uh, a great you know, it was a newspaper management, a great wee local paper, uh, parish pump stuff, but there was still this drug of wanting to investigate things that maybe I shouldn't have been poking my nose in. I don't think, in all honesty, I worked out my backlash factor. And whenever I'm talking to trainee journalists or wannabe journalists, I always say to them, work out your backlash factor. If you publish this, if you broadcast this, what will be the backlash uh, I think that uh, from that point of view, another thing that I, I look at is we can all accept praise. Mm -hmm. If something goes absolutely well, we can all accept the pat on the back. But if you do something and you're getting a lot of flack, especially now in the era of social media where we've trolls and online abuse and stuff like that, how do you cope with that criticism? Uh, I suppose then again, the tough time that I had growing up as a Presbyterian minister's son Maybe that shaped me for journalism. Maybe that gave me that thick outer skin uh, that enabled me to do these stories. But I think I have to admit that in some of the stories I did, that it was like a drug. I need this new fix. I need to talk to so-and-so. I need to get that story. Yeah. Sounds, it's such a tough ethical maze to sort of, you know... Yes, uh, I, I suppose for me... There is still a story that I struggle with uh, because I'm often, when I speak to, you know, coming from a church background, when I address Christian groups about my role in journalism, uh, there's often asked, has there ever been a story apart from uh, the, being the invitation to the Sabbath that I didn't go that satanic uh, meeting? There is a story that uh, I struggle with today. Um, because the one at the Sabbath was, for me, very black and white. 
I'm not going to anything where Satan is glorified. End of. That's it. Um, a number of years ago, I had a relative who became a born-again Christian. And uh, they got involved with a particular church. And from time to time, this relative would invite me out to functions in their church. And any time I went, seemed to be everything going hunky-dory. But after a couple of years, rumours began to circulate about my relative's private life. And within a very short time, the judgmental gossips in that church went from rumour-mongering to open persecution. And because one of my specialist areas that I, I look at uh, is media law, uh, he turned to me for some advice. And I was able to get him some documentation that contradicted uh, what the gossips were accusing him of. However, the leadership of that church had clearly taken the decision that my relative was out of the positions. And he took this really badly, and he gave up his faith, uh, what they call in Christian terms, backsliding. He also took the rejection and the persecution of this church so badly that he decided to leave Northern Ireland. And it was a very difficult time for us as a wider family circle, uh, because we had to endure jokes and jibes from time to time about my relative, and it was very difficult to cope with, uh, because there's nothing worse as a Christian, with another Christian having a go at you. Um, a couple of years after this befell my uh, relative, I was working uh, at the Irish Daily Star, when right out of the blue, into my office, walked a worshipper from that church that my relative had been linked with. And I initially thought when they walked in, I recognised them from that church, and I thought they were there to give me a bit of verbal about my relative. But this was a whistleblower. And over the course of the next hour, this uh, worshipper made several unsubstantiated allegations concerning the private lives of people in their own church. And as I looked down the list of names that this person had given me, I realised that some of the people on this list were people who had been really, really vociferous in their judgmental criticism of my relative. And I have to say, my view was, happy days, I'm going to pay you back. Yeah. I've now, okay, unsubstantiated allegations, but if I can stand these allegations up 100% legally, ethically, factually, mm -hmm. you're going to be in the front page of the Irish Daily Star. Yeah. And uh, as I began work on it, uh, I found myself in a conflict with my Christian faith. It was as if... In my private devotion time, God was saying to me, Coulter, why are you really doing this story? And Coulter, have you taken into consideration the impact, if you publish this story, will have on the genuine Christian witness in that church? Because not everybody in that church is a judgmental slabber and gossip. Yeah. And I find myself actually, as a Christian, having arguments with God. And I would quote from... The, uh, the journalist bible McNeil's essential law for journalists and I would say look God I will make sure everything com fully complies with the laws on defamation I'll be able to defend anything I write about the private lives of these gossips in any court of law in this country and as for why I'm doing it I would quote in my spiritual prayers you know the, the uh, public interest defence I'd say look God 
I do not want another family circle to have to go through the hurt, the pain and the tears that these gossips put us through. So if I can stop that by putting a few of them on the front page of the Daily Star, or Irish Daily Star, I'll do it. And as for the name of the whistleblower, that's something I will take with me into eternity. But where it came to a head was, in our Christian faith, there was a particular course that was very, very helpful. It's known as an Alpha course. And many Christian denominations do it to study the Bible in more depth. And one night I was at this Alpha course and it was on Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, where Peter uh, asks Christ, how many times should I forgive my brother if they sin against me? And Peter says, is it seven times? Forgive them seven times. And Christ says, no, it's 70 times seven. And I had to realise that night that the only reason I was doing that story, Doggo, was to pay those people back. A bit like it says in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. And I took the decision not to do that story. Uh, I know my source, uh, our mole inside that church, was really upset at yeah. the decision because they said to me, what happens if they do it to another family? On your own head, be it. You know, so that I struggle with it because from time to time I will bump into people from that particular church. And I remember on one occasion I went with my family to one of my favourite restaurants. And you know the way you're in a restaurant, you look around the tables beside you. And I looked over uh, at the table, one of the tables beside me, and there was one of the people whose private life I was investigating. And they were whipping it up and they were having a good time, great time with chums or family or ever they were with. And I'm sitting there thinking, boiling over, why should you have that good time when my relative is stuck over in England yeah. because of the gossip that you spread? Yeah. And I struggled with that story. I struggled with that story. And, you know, I, I still, even though I took the, even though I'm retired from the Irish Daily Star, uh, I retired in 2016 when my late father was first diagnosed with cancer, spend more time with dad. But at the same time, you know, that was what, how many, four, seven years ago, mm -hmm. I still struggle with it, doggo. And there are times whenever it's almost as if there are two voices in my ears, one saying, look, you've got all the stuff. Go ahead and publish it. And another one saying, no, the damage that it will do to the Christian faith, the damage that it will do to that particular church is just too much. You've got to have strong faith, though, to keep that going, don't you? I, I need that. I would think, if I'm looking very negative, mm -hmm. if I was to backslide myself, in other words, renounce my Christian faith, I hope it never happens, but I would simply say, the bottom line is, if I ever renounced my Christian faith, that story about that church, that will be the first one I publish. Yeah. But I hope it never comes to that. You mentioned about return from the Irish Daily Star in 2016. Now you do a bit of work with GB News. Yeah. How did that come about? Uh, well, basically, um, GB News was looking to expand into Northern Ireland. Uh, and they advertised for positions uh, and I applied and uh, I was fortunate enough. I'd been doing some freelancing uh, before that. After I retired from the Irish Daily Star, uh, I freelanced. I did some work with the Sunday Times, the Sun newspaper and the Daily Telegraph. Just freelancing bits and pieces. Uh, and I did some broadcasting, I went into religious broadcasting with Shunset. 
Try and say that properly. <laughs> I think it's my false teeth are happening around. Sunshine 1049. And I have a Saturday morning show uh, called Call In Coulter, which is a talk show where we discuss passages of the Bible uh, and stuff like that. And uh, potential stuff that a Christian might face in life. Uh, from that aspect of things, so that I, I'm getting more and more involved in religious broadcasting. But there's still that hook of the political commentating, Politics, yeah. so that uh, I managed to secure a role as a political commentator with GB News, so I go on from time to time and pontificate uh, on matters. And you enjoy it? I can see the glint in your eye. You can... Yes, compared, the reason why I enjoy it... Uh, I really enjoyed my time at the BBC, but there are very strict guidelines as to what you can say editorially and what you can't say. I feel I have much more freedom to express me, John Coulter, uh, on GB News than I had at the BBC. But then again, I'm looking at my time in the BBC in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, But certainly from that point of view, I enjoy the freedom that I have as well. Uh, Plus the fact that with the technology, I don't have to go to London every time I want to broadcast. Um, I can set up with my MacBook and I get a link. So I have my shirt and tie. If I'm doing an early morning, there's the shirt and tie and jacket. And, you know, hopefully I look the part and have my jammy bottoms on and my fluffy bunny slippers. (laughs) What a picture. What a picture. uh, That's a a shocking picture. Okay, just to finish up then, sort of the last part of the podcast, always like the, um, when I'm interviewing someone, to, to sort of get to know you a bit. You know, wee things maybe people don't know about you or, you know, people have a, maybe, they see you as Dr. John Coulter, the political correspondent, but don't know John. So, um, just some quick questions, whatever way you want to do it. Sure. You know, tea or coffee, man? Oh, tea. Especially, um, what do you call it, the herbal tea. I've become fixated with that. What's your favourite breakfast? Uh, it would have to be my wife's porridge. Oh, lovely. But anything on it? Uh, no. Uh, occasionally now I'll take peaches on it. Peaches? Peaches, but no sugar. I've managed to give up sugar. <laughs> like us all, we we'll only need to cut back, don't we? Um, any hobbies you have that people... Well, maybe yeah. we haven't talked about. Yeah, my hobbies. Uh, it's my schoolboy hobby. I build model aircraft. Brilliant. And uh, there is a particular brand of aircraft that I... Uh, or maker called Airfix and yes, it's as if them. I'm right back in primary school days and whenever I was in the Presbyterian months uh, I used to get these big strings and hang them up as if there was dog fights between Messerschmitts and Spitfires so uh, and even in my man shed I, I have a big thing uh, glass case where I have a number of uh, model planes and during lockdown uh, I returned to it uh, and I made model planes do you remember there was a shop down in, was it Queen Street in town? The model, was it just called the, the model, model shop? The model shop, yes. I yeah. was a frequent visitor. Many's a, uh, shall we say, a good model that I, I bought there. Uh, I by I would... model, I mean, uh, <laughs> coming from the Irish Daily Star, uh, I, I suppose I have to watch because I remember one time uh, I used to get into a lot of conflict uh, over what I wrote in the Irish Daily Star. Uh, was, was the Irish Daily Star, obviously, it's more of a tabloid. It's a bit yeah. more light-hearted then. Uh, from, no, I, I think maybe more at that time I worked for it, maybe more misogynistic. I would have a lot of scantily clad women. Uh, my Monday column was there. It was called Coulter's Fearless Flying Column, and it would be my political pontifications. 
And I remember a church elder coming up to me on one occasion and saying to me, John, are you sure as a Christian you should have these scantily clad women on your column? And I turned to him and said, how do you know there's scantily clad women on my column? And that ended the conversation. But the most brilliant one, most brilliant one was um, there was a model that I would have carried from time to time uh, on it. I think her name was Rosie Whittington Huntley. I think that's her name. I think she modelled quite a bit for Victoria's Secrets underwear. Okay. If I'm right. So I had this and some of the guys in the church got a wee bit annoyed that I had this Victoria's Secrets model uh, on my column. So they challenged me one night and they were really giving me some lip after church. And they invited over this uh, young married uh, woman over, hoping that she would get stuck into me. Uh, she said, this is disgraceful, you know, look at this Victoria's Secrets models that Coulter has on his column. What do you think about this? To which she replied, I wish my husband would buy me Victoria's Secrets underwear. <laughs> that was their whole collapse. But the one thing that I used to take an awful lot of flack for was the language I used. I think that if I have one regret in journalism, it's maybe I should have toned down some of the language that I used uh, in my writing. It was quite blunt. And I remember on several occasions my father would ring me because an unusual thing about my time in the Daily Star, when people wanted to complain, they rang my dad. And I used to always gauge how far I pushed the boat out by the number of calls that my dad got. I got very rarely did I get a call. Uh, and I remember on one occasion I pushed the boat out too far when I used the F word in my column and my father went through me for a shortcut because he had been receiving calls left, right and centre about his boy's grammar. <laughs> uh, because, interesting thing, I, I remember people would complain to dad about me and I remember it was 2003, it was the election count for the Northern Ireland Assembly and dad had been re-elected for the Ulster Unionist Party on the first count along with doc the late Dr Paisley and Ian Jr. And Dr. Paisley came over to my dad at the count and he was upset about something I had written, uh, I think, in a magazine. And my father said to him, uh, well, look, John's married, he's a family. Here's his number and you can ring him, Ian, that's Ian Senior, uh, and speak to him. And uh, uh, Dr. Paisley turned to, me to my dad and said, no, Robert, you speak to him, you're his father. So that, you know, there I was all, all through life. You know, yeah. and one of the things I'll say is, even though I miss my father terribly, I think I'm now more of a loose cannon in journalism because I know dad's in heaven. They can't ring heaven and say, uh, Robert, we'd like to complain to you about what your boy has said on GB News or we'd like to complain about what's been said in the newsletter or something along those. They can't yeah. do that anymore. Yeah. We, do, we know your favourite football team. We don't have to mention Arsenal. Favourite player? Favourite player has got to be, and I go right back to the 70s, Charlie George. Now, I know that's a name from history, but Charlie George scored the winner in the 1971 FA Cup final against Liverpool uh, to win Arsenal's first ever double. Um, okay. Um, phobias? Needles. Uh, my party trick is fainting when I get my flu jab. And even when I went for my COVID jabs, um, 
basically they had to put a special area. Imagine all the thousands of people coming through to get their 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 COVID jabs and boosters. They had to have a special table for me to lie down on so as I wouldn't collapse. Mm. So that one thing uh, about me that probably you don't know is uh, because of a phobia of needles, I obviously tattoos are out, but I decided for my wife's birthday one year that I would get a tattoo. It was the most painful thing. <laughs> I mean, it's just a little tattoo on a yeah. part of my body that only my wife can see. We'll so say no more about say that. Say no more about that. Uh, but I decided I would get my wife a tattoo. Uh, for me, that is. So I went along, and it was it was sheer agony. All I can describe by hundreds. The experience of getting that tattoo was like being stung by hundreds of bees in the place. And it was a horrific experience, probably because there were some young girls waiting to come in to get tattooed. And they were looking at some brilliant body art, multicoloured all over their back, front legs, whatever. And I was just getting just this little uh, tattoo of a heart with the little nickname that I have for my wife on it. And I came home, and it was a few days to go before her birthday. And they put a gauze over the tattoo to let your skin settle down. I was in agony, doggo. <laughs> and I thought, I can't wait until my wife's birthday. i got to confess that I got this tattoo. And I called my wife up to the bedroom, and I showed her the tattoo. She thought it was one of these, I think the pronunciation is Hina tattoos, like a stick-on thing. Yeah. And she slapped it, and I Oof. fainted again. <laughs> <laughs> one last question. We'll have to wrap it up. Any regrets? Yes, I regret the language that I used in some of my Irish Daily Star columns because of the flack that it resulted in mum and dad for mum and dad. What uh, about during maybe the eighties and things like that? No, some I have no regrets about that. Nothing at all. I would have to do it all over again. Brilliant. I would do it all over again. But as I say, I think I would temper down my tabloid language on that score John Dr John Calder I'd like to thank you very much for your time my pleasure it's an absolute pleasure I could listen to you all day yeah so many we could maybe have to do this two or three times more over but I'd like to thank you very much for your time um, I hope you got something out of it today as well I'm sure our listeners will and we'll be back